just a quick message from me, Rebecca Adil, and I will be quick, I promise. Just a few things I want to say. I'm really excited to share the new series, series two of Killing Time. There's loads of exciting episodes in store and I just know you're going to love it. Secondly, the reviews have been brilliant. Thank you so much for that. If you haven't done it yet, a five-star review would be much appreciated. And finally, 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 if you would like to support the podcast, we do have a Patreon account, which I bang on about all the time. <laughs> Don't feel pressured, but it would be wonderful. You can find us on www.patreon.com forward slash killing underscore time. <sighs> and breathe. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Killing Time, the podcast that investigates the darkest moments of our past to shine a light on wider histories. I'm Rebecca Adil and I'll be your guide. Sit back, relax and listen as we delve into the latest episode, The Sleepers of Barn Cemetery. The word cemetery means sleeping place in Greek and was first applied to Roman catacombs. But the practice of burying and memorialising the dead goes back much further than that. The oldest known cemetery in the world is believed to be a Moroccan cave where 34 individuals were buried around 15,000 years ago. Today, scattered across every town, city and country around the globe are the remains of these silent cities, places filled with the sleepers whose lives were once just as full, free and vibrant as ours today. episode we'll explore the story of just one cemetery, Barnes Cemetery, which holds the mortal remains of physicians, philanthropists, painters and professors. To do this I'm joined by City of Westminster guide, heritage communicator and founder of the Cemetery Club, Sheldon Goodman. Sheldon, thank you for coming on the podcast today. You do some really interesting work, don't you, with the Cemetery Club? <laughs> I, I like to think I do. I try to, I mean, it's a bit of a niche interest by, by even by my own admission, but it seems to be something that other people love to see and get involved with as well. So it's, it's, a, it's a complete pleasure to kind of bring joy and interest and kind of intrigue and expectation from something that you wouldn't ordinarily expect it to kind of come from as a, as a regular kind of source of information or historical kind of backing. But I think it is something that interests a lot of people. I mean, I, I it sounds weird, but I do. I love wandering around graveyards and cemeteries and just reading the names on, on the tombs because it's kind of like a little time capsule, isn't it? And a small little insight into people's lives. Well, I think, I think an insight's correct, but I'd also go one further and say, I think headstones are actually pretty rubbish at telling a story because they... Okay. Because most of the time, you know, the head, the, the actual stone above ground, the person beneath it, usually never saw. There are kind of exceptions to that because, you know, there's stories of how some Victorians and some Edwardians bought their headstone way ahead of schedule and they, you know, they personally designed it or they saw it or, or what have you. But, you know, if you look at it, space is often limited and it usually doesn't really diverge from in loving memory. Then it gives the name and then usually like a biblical passage and then born, da, 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 death, da, 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 da. And that's it. It doesn't tell you about what their favorite, you know, macaroon was. It doesn't tell you that they went to Egypt 17 times. It doesn't tell you that they had three marriages and they had about 17 mistresses on the side as well. So that's where people like me come into it. We try and 
research these stories and these stones and try to literally bring them back to life in as respectful a way as possible to try and, you know, make us remember that, you know, what we're going through now, the life stories has happened time and time again. Mm -hmm. And there's such a measurable joy and pleasure that you can get from hearing these old tales. And I, you know, I, I love doing it. It's fantastic to research. It sounds like lots and lots of fun. But today we're, we're here to talk about one particular cemetery, Barnes. I wonder if you could set the scene, describe the cemetery for us. Sure. Now, Barnes is one of those peculiar cemeteries. And I use the term peculiar in, in kind of quotation marks because it's it's there, but you wouldn't know it was. So if you're ever familiar with, with the Barnes area, if any of the listeners are familiar with the Barnes area, if you ever drive through Barnes Common, you'll often see just as you're approaching the bottom end of Castle Nor, there's like a tennis club and then like a playing field. But shortly before that, there's like a little collection of trees. And within this collection of trees is a Victorian cemetery, which is in a very sorry state. And you could walk past it. You'd never know it was there. It's only when you look closely into the foliage and you see the odd Celtic cross sticking out or an old wonky headstone. It's kind of like it's a bit jarring. You're thinking this is a common. What, what's this, this kind of weird cemetery without walls doing mm. here? Now, it was established in 1854, and it was essentially the extension of the local parish churchyard. And there was some opposition when it was opened. A lot of people weren't happy that common land was being sacrificed for the dead. But then the alternative was to keep using the churchyard around the church in Barnes Village itself, which was kind of a bursting point, like many cemeteries were in the 1830s, 40s and 50s. So mm -hmm. it kind of responded to the call that the likes of the Magnificent Seven cemeteries, like the likes of Highgate, West Norwood, Brompton, Tower Hamlets and Nunhead and so on. And it was part yeah. of a wave of cemeteries that opened when, you know, essentially there was just no burial space and the kind of conditions that people were expected to bury their loved ones and their uh, dearly departed in were frankly atrocious. So they opened up that first wave and then they thought, oh, hang on, we haven't got enough here. We need to open up some more. So you had things like Barnes and then eventually Hampstead and Hillingdon and Uxbridge and Croydon that would open basically to try and give a respectful, beautiful place of everlasting rest to the people who were buried there. It was opened on two acres of sandy ground and it was purchased for the sum of £10, which, you know, back in, it seems like a fairly nominal amount of money in kind of today's amounts. But the actual area where the cemetery is opened is a fantastic kind of microcosm of space and how humans have used it over thousands of years because, you know, there's evidence of a settlement in the Mesolithic period there. It was used kind of as uh, fallow land and grazing land for sheep and cattle. It was a wetland right up until the railway arrived just kind of on its eastern border in the 1840s. And it's also the location where Springheel Jack made one of his first appearances in London. So in the kind of, oh, wow. kind of folklore existence, you've suddenly got this cemetery that opens up and it's also got this traveller's camp right next to it because Barnes Common was a very popular location for the travelling community to kind of operate. They settled there kind of in the early 1830s and would often, even in the early years of the cemetery, go traipsing up and down Castle Nor and Barnes Village itself, selling things like baskets and heather and so on to the big established houses of mm. the time. So you've got this this kind of little enclave. Enclave within enclave is probably the best way to put it. So you've got the travelling community next door. You've got people playing polo and cycling on the common next door. And then in this lovely little bricked-off segment, you've got this beautiful, very manicured, beautiful, essentially a extension of a local churchyard, which is just waiting to take the well-to-do and the established residents of Barnes for their eternal place of rest. One of these residents, or was he actually, that's a question, but one of these residents does have a grave there, and his story is one that you 
are going to tell us a little bit about now. Samuel Rabbath, could you tell me, first of all, what his grave looks like and also his life and how that you know fits into the wider histories of the time? Sure. So Samuel Rabbath is an interesting one because he's actually got two memorials. He's got his grave in Barnes and he's also got a little plaque in Postman's Park in the city of London. Now, a lot of readers might go, oh, Postman's Park, I've heard of that one before. Mm. And that was actually featured in the film Closer, featuring right. Natalie Portman, I believe. And Rabbath's grave itself, it's not particularly remarkable. It's just a simple headstone. But if you look at the headstone, it's actually quite jarring because it is absolutely jam-packed with wording. It is the very dictionary definition of Victorian <laughs> eulogising. It's, you know, it's basically, oh, this man was so wonderful. He, was, he, you know, he did this, he did that. He was so dedicated to his cause. Now, Rabbath was actually the chief medical officer at the Royal Free Hospital when it was based down Gray's Inn Road in London. And he died in October 1884 from diphtheria. Now, diphtheria is one of those uh, diseases we've almost forgotten about. You only kind of really hear about it, it whispered and mentioned by historians in various kind of TV shows or in podcasts or what have you. But it, it was a terrible mm. disease. The first symptoms of it was this thick grey membrane that grew at the back of your throat over your tonsils. And it could cause suffocation, sore throat and hoarseness, swollen glands, difficulty breathing and rapid discharge and fevers and chills and what have you. And it was a terrible scourge, essentially, of 19th century Britain until vaccination came in in 1913 for it. But in this particular case, Samuel Rabbath was actually tending to a 14-year-old child who was the son of a baker who was suffering from it quite badly. Now, it was pretty clear, really, that this child was, its card was marked. There was not really much that could be done. The only thing that really could be done was basically making its end of life comfortable, essentially. But he wanted to go that little bit further and do what he could, like any good doctor could do, to extend this child's life as much as possible. So he performed a tracheotomy on the child, and using a straw, he then basically sucked out the gunk and nastiness from this child's lungs. Now, it's again, this is a day pre-antibiotics, pre-sterilization, pre proper tools to do the job essentially it's a pretty horrific thing that he did but it was in, in his mind it was the only way that this child's life could be prolonged so he did it and it worked the the kind of all the nastiness was was kind of removed but then kind of unsurprisingly Samuel himself became a victim of diphtheria he started to exhibit symptoms and then on October the 20th 1884 he then eventually passed away from it and he was eventually buried in Barnes Cemetery he came from a very wealthy family. His father, James, was an employee of Coote's Bank and was also the president of the City of London mm. Chess Club, to which Sammy himself was also a member. There's these weird little snippets where you wouldn't, you know, this is one of the, the absolute joys of a historian when you find these little snippets yeah. in archives where you don't expect them. You know, it was, um, I think he, he participated in a chess match in 1874 and he was known for his chess prowess. <laughs> he was clearly a very clever man. And he was eulogised at the time. People regarded him as a hero. There was some commentary from his colleagues going, why on earth did he do that? Because that was a rather foolish thing to do, really. But by and large, people adored it. And he was given a memorial in Postman's Park, which was founded by the artist G.F. Watts. And it was essentially a place where people who did heroic acts would have these acts commemorated in tile form. And he's there alongside the likes of you know, many members of the working classes. You know, you've got people from Woolwich and Croydon and West Ham saving people from, you know, burning buildings or from drowning. A recent one was done in 2007 for Lee Pitt, who was a reprographics operator. So, he, you know, there is a pantheon of people there 
who did remarkable things. And if you can't go to all the various London cemeteries that are all over, you can go to this little place here and see all this Victorian heroism jam-packed into this lovely kind of like tiled wall. And this is what the world that Samuel kind of, his memory fell into, you know, in the, in the times of the 1880s, just a couple of years before the, the Whitechapel murders, which is probably what I know the 1880s best for, sadly. You have these remarkable acts of heroism, people trying to apply medicine in a time when it was still being worked out, it was still being figured. And I think there's a particular resonance with his story today because, you know, again, we're fighting our own kind of, you know, the next big thing in, in kind of infection and disease, you know, the dreaded coronavirus. And we're seeing how we're kind of having on the hoof in so many ways, trying to work out how it works and how to deal with patients and how to make their suffering and their their care essentially as pleasant as possible in the face of incredible, incredible hardship and nastiness. So it's, I think his story is remarkable in that sense in that it's just part of an ongoing narrative really. Yeah, it, it is. And it fits into themes that we're unfortunately having to explore ourselves living in the contemporary world. In the cemetery then, so we have his grave. Are there any other notable people that have been buried there that you could pick out from your research? There are loads. And whenever I do a tour around Barnes, and particularly any cemetery at the moment, I usually start with an apology. And that's not because I think the tour is going to be rubbish or because I haven't prepared. (laughs) A lot of these stories that I find do tend to be about white Victorian men, which is great. That's fine. But Mm. a lot of these stories, I think, could be further embellished. And one of the stories that I wanted to, the way I do my tours as well, is to basically try and bring minority voices into it so you know if you've got your queer stories if you've got people of color stories and so on and yeah kind of historical record they're usually lacking now with Barnes, it is a white victorian cemetery there's no denying or escaping that fact but if you think about the status of the people who are buried there for example you've got the likes of uh, the hedgeman tomb william hedgeman massive massive tomb in the middle of this cemetery honestly you step into this woodland if I can set the scene of what Barnes Cemetery is like. Oh, please do. You step through off the common and you basically are going to this sylvan world. It's this glade of trees and dappled sunlight and shadows and, and what have you. And you see these headstones all around you. And as you walk up the main drive, you are confronted and if basically visually assaulted by this huge kind of marble tomb. It's Even by Victorian mm. standards, it's absolutely massive. It's the, in, within this kind of circle... And it's this huge obelisk, which is topped by an angel. And this is the grave to the Hedgeman family. Now, William Hedgeman was a guy who studied at Lincoln College in Oxford, and he died at the very young age of 27 in 1869. And his parents lived nearby in Elm Bank in Barnes. Now, there are various other family members that are put into this tomb. I mean, you can imagine that this thing probably accommodates about 20 people. It's that vast. It's huge. And a number of them were actually moved from Abney Park Cemetery because that's another thing that Victorians like to do. They like to kind of move the dead around. It's almost like, oh, this cemetery is kind of, we don't really like it. Let's move it to a kind of slightly nicer one. So it's almost like changing rooms in a way. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, gosh. Yeah. I, did, I wasn't aware of that as a so, particularly Victorian thing. Okay. It, it, it happened. I mean, it didn't happen a lot because obviously it had special dispensation had to be given from the church and what have you. But the, the yeah. Edmonds also had a grave in Abney Park which is not as big, it's sizable, but it's not as big as this. And it, I love how they, they they kind of update the grave and they say in the, in the Abney Park one, they go, oh, and by the way, this person was here, but we move them to Barnes. To a historian, it's great because it gives us a visual track record of, of movement after death. But this particular grave is absolutely whacking. It's huge. 
Again, it's for a, a, a patriarchy, a white patriarchy. So one of the things I'm looking into at the moment is the, the servants that this household employed, because a lot of them were women and a lot of them were of pretty limited means. Ongoing research on that one, but it's a huge testament. And it's also a good underlying description of what Barnes was like as an area when this cemetery opened in 1854. So moving on from Hedgeman, there's, I mean, you know, there's loads as well. There's the one I find quite sad is the grave of a guy called Henry Katz Davson. And I found out about this grave when I was doing some research for the tour from the Orlean House Museum website. And they've got an archive of photos of the cemetery in the 1960s. By this time, the cemetery is fairly full. Grasses have grown up where there were once neat begonias and verbena and, you know, Limnanthes Douglasi. You've now got these tall grasses. Headstones have gone wonky. It's neglected. A place of memory has become a memory itself. And this lovely grave, mm. it's this Victorian Gothic white number. You know, you can imagine it sitting quite happily in a cathedral. It's to Henry Katz Davson. Now, he was the member of the Court of Policy for British Guyana, and he was also the deputy chairman of the West India Committee. Now, the West India Committee was founded in 1780, and it was created to represent the interests of plantation and slave owners. Instantly, when I read that, I was like, ooh, ooh, okay, here we go. This, this, is, this is the the grimmer side of our history that isn't often touched on in schools, but it's there and it should be absolutely be debated. Yeah, Henry himself was born in Burbese in the West Indies, and his father actually uh, received compensation for slaves. If you look at the UCL slave index, for example, you can actually see the claims that he submitted when slavery was abolished, and he was obviously compensated for his for his lost income, essentially. But Henry was mm. a, um, a, he worked as a sugar merchant. He went into the colonial administration under Sir Henry Light, who was the governor for Antigua and Dominica. He was knighted in 1903, and he was also an early pioneer of the export of Balata, which was a kind of tree which makes latex, which I didn't know. Now, when he died in 1909, oh, right. I know, okay. it's weird. Again, I, I'd never heard of it. It's it remarkable. But when he died in 1909, he had this lovely thing erected for the family tomb. And it was there behind the chapel, flanked by two crosses either side. And again, it makes a statement. Even in death, this was someone who was powerful and was rich. Now, one thing I love to do is look at historical photos and compare it to how it looks today. Now, because Barnes has let nature take over, for, you know, new trees have sprung up. You've got sycamores, you've got ash trees as well. It doesn't look how it did in the 1960s when these photos were taken. So I had a real hard time trying to find out where this picture was. Anyway, I found it simply because one of the bits of masonry was quite distinctive. And I thought, oh, hang on, I think I recognise that. But I thought, oh, hang on, actually, let's look at the wider context here. This does not look like it did in the 1960s when it was photographed. It's basically rubble. It's a pile of rubble now. The only thing that oh, makes gosh. me realise that it, it's the same thing is, again, is these little select bits of masonry that have been kind of preserved in situ, fallen from when the chapel behind it was demolished. And I think it's quite, you know, it's, it's almost like it's, it, it's, a, it's a metaphor itself for people's memory, thinking that this would last forever. But then, you know, the passage of time is just completely fallen over. And it's just such a shame to think that so much money and craft was put onto erecting what was supposed to be a permanent marker for this person is now literally a crumpled mass of broken rock on the floor. And it's, and it's very telling, I think, of a particular Victorian cemetery that has just kind of fallen by the wayside. So again, that's just what, what another remarkable guy in his, what was supposed to be an everlasting memory, forgotten. Gosh, you have such a fascinating 
area of research I bet you can't stop once you've found you know once you've got a, a few clues I bet you're one of those people that's non-stop kind of researching it's... into the late hours of the night yeah, oh, yeah. My, my poor other half honestly I mean I'm, he's like oh come to bed it's three o'clock and I'm like no I'm on ancestry I found this person I think they're, I think they're potentially lesbians I think they're great oh my god this is queer history amazing it's very hard to stop for sure and the way I look at cemeteries, they are essentially boroughs of people. They're towns, they're museums of people. You know, if you look at the likes of, like, say, Tower Hamlets, for example, you know, you've got nearly over 150,000 people buried there. You wouldn't think it if you went there. And it's similar to St. Barnes. You know, there's easily a couple of thousand people buried here. And it's my job to try and reclaim that history. Now, I could spend the rest of my life just researching Barnes alone. And there's, you know, again, there's just so many stories there. And what I love about Barnes, other than the fact it's this very romantic, almost idealised, decayed cemetery, there's just such wonderful stories there to be found as well. And, you know, I've just told you about two of them, and it's just remarkable, really. So, I mean, I know we're not alone in the in the animal kingdom in memorialising our dead. Do you think there's something something to be said about the reasons why we do it? I think we, as a, as, a, as a species and even as a nation, I think we put incredible amounts of weight on things that made us. And I think it makes complete sense that we want to remember those who've gone before us. And again, they're, they're, it kind of ebbs and flows through time. The Victorians were very much about trying to create memorials that made a statement. You know, the person that it commemorates is long dead, but let this monument speak on their behalf. If this person was rich, huge whacking memorial. If they were poor then they were buried in you know, a common grave with, with hundreds of others. And the fact that there's no headstone, the silence speaks volumes there as well. We love to put that kind of emphasis on and making sure that a life is commemorated in no matter what way. It could be a small plaque. It could be a, it could be a little, like, little bench marker. You know, it can even be a little bit of graffiti that I'm seeing um, pop up occasionally as well. We do love to create these spaces because it, it's a representation of what's going on in our head, I think. It's nice to actually have a place of pilgrimage, actually, uh, rather than just going, oh, you know, I remember my great auntie Enid, you know, she used to make fabulous brownies every Sunday. But it's also nice to have a place where we have somewhere we can commemorate them and remember those stories from long ago. Yeah, like a physical space that's still connected to them. I, I get that. Okay, so here's the here's the million dollar question for a guy that researches graveyards and cemeteries and death. How, how do you think you'd want to go? I think I'd want to be cremated. Oh, Rebecca, what a question. And I've wrestled. This is a question that's actually almost kept me up at night. And I, I people go, oh, of course it would. <laughs> of course it would, Sheldon, for goodness sake. I, uh, uh, okay, how do I answer this? I think if I'm going to be honest with myself, I think cremation's probably the way forward. Yeah. I'd actually even argue aquamation because I think it's probably kind to the environment. So rather than using fire, using water to yeah. dispose of your remains. I think burial nowadays, I mean, number one, it's so prohibitively expensive. It really is. I mean, you, you don't have to go into like the inner London boroughs to see how much a plot can cost. I think cremation is probably yep. the way forward. And I, mm, there is a family plot in Surrey, which I don't really want to go into because I am so in love with the Victorian big monuments, but I know it's, it's just a... Uh, Oh, you want a monument, don't you? I do. I can I tell. Want, You're kind of skirting big, around it. I want a big classical temple that has arms holding <laughs> lanterns. I want an espresso machine inside, so if people want to have a look at my, at my coffin, they can go, oh, I'm going to have a quick, you know, little bit of coffee while I'm here. Probably some sort of information board, a downstairs area where you can have, like, you know, you can work on your laptop or something while, you know, weird, weird, I know. 
But if I if I if I had my if I had I love my it. Way, I, I, you know it, it's 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 completely ridiculous. But if I had my way, then I would yeah I'd, I'd probably go ostentatious, big, showy, carved granite pedestals and what have you. But I think in reality, yeah, cremation and uh, probably end up in the family plot. I'm guessing. Listen, Sheldon, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you today. Just one final thing. If people want to attend one of your tours in the future, where, where would they go to find out more? So the best place to find me, I'm on, all, I'm on most of the social medias, uh, but I'm on Twitter as Cemetery Club. I'm on Instagram as The Cemetery Club. I'm on Facebook as Cemetery Club. Since speaking to Sheldon earlier this year, The Cemetery Club has set up a number of really marvellous virtual tours which can be viewed for free at your leisure via the Cemetery Club website. (laughs) 